Welcome to the Shift Podcast. This podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee people. The creators of this podcast recognize that we are all treaty people and we accept our collective responsibility to each other and to reconciliation as we work towards an equitable, inclusive, and accessible campus for all. On the Shift podcast facilitated by Student Affairs, you will hear from students of diverse backgrounds about their lived experiences at Queen's, how these experiences are shaped by identity, their visions for a safer and more inclusive campus climate, and what needs to happen for there to be a meaningful and lasting culture shift. We actively need to engage in educating ourselves and you know, have conversations with people, call people out when you see your friends doing something that It is just so pivotal how they respond in that first moment um, because that totally will influence the way that that person goes about their reporting process or healing process in general, so. Because, you know, amplifying is one thing, but responding and making a solution is the next, I think. Things like that, I think, are huge. And I don't think professors and TAs realize how much influence they have over students in those specific times. Power dynamics are so important and they can be so negative, but they can also have such a positive impact. Today, we'll hear from Aubrey, India, and Alicia. Please note that this episode of The Shift podcast will feature Queen's student experiences and perceptions of campus safety and conversation about topics relating to sexual violence and harassment. Some listeners may find this content upsetting or challenging to listen to. These are difficult topics. If you feel overwhelmed at any point while listening to this podcast or reflecting on it later, pay attention to your needs. There are resources to support you. Visit the Queen's Student Wellness website for more information. Hi everyone, I'm Aubrey Apps and I am one of the co-chairs of Consensual Humans. I am a third year global development student and yeah, really excited to get into a conversation about consent and that sort of thing at Queens. Hello, hello everyone. My name is India Ravenhurst. I am also in third year. I am a history major and I'm also one of the co-chairs of Consensual Humans here at Queens. Awesome. Hi, Aubrey and India um, and everyone listening. Uh, my name is Lisa Parker. I use she, her pronouns and I'm a second year in life science. Um, and I am one of the gender-based violence awareness and bystander intervention education facilitators um, at the Student Experience Office. Awesome. Definitely excited to get into some conversation talking about sexual violence on campus and consent and what that means. I guess a good place to start would be, um, what do you both think are some of the most prevalent myths about sexual violence on campus? I think like if an individual acts or carries themselves in a certain way, they're asking to be sexually violated or mistreated. I think that's like the main takeaway I've taken so far for like what the most prevalent myth would be with regards to sexual violence, especially on campus. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm sure we're going to get into it lots because it it comes up a lot in um, the student experience survey. But um, I think one of those one of those parts of kind of playing into what people would consider a not perfect victim um, is like that role alcohol can play, um, which I think is such an important one. And, and I could pull up the statistic, I'm sure, but um, it's really astounding, like how much the levels of um, sexual assault and sexual violence go up um, with alcohol in play and, and kind of discussing like how that impacts um, the situation, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I feel like the main thing I was just going to say was how like the sheer quantity of sexual violence that occurs. I think that that's sometimes not talked about. So I'm really excited that we're talking about that today, obviously, from the student experience survey and how it's disproportionately impacting students. Um, Also, like I'm curious as to how you both think that these myths persist. Um, I think part of it is just like a lack of talking about it, Um, especially I think kind of when it comes down to um, sort of what India brought up about that, like no perfect victim narrative um, is it, it's not just about like in the moment, but beyond that, like afterwards, like on how a victim like or survivor acts after the fact um, can I think really play into that on how people kind of judge that scenario. Um, they may not act like someone expects them to act. And that's something we talk about a lot in our kind of training is that if they didn't fight back or they didn't, um, if they don't seem like distraught immediately after like people kind of start to question that and and I think that's really unfortunate and plays into that a little bit of not understanding um, those myths yeah like that's that's so true I think that like what I think is that the myth definitely continues because of like how stigmatized the topic matter is like many victims feel guilt after the event occurs where they were assaulted and try to understand it like through the lens of it was my fault when it wasn't it's the perpetrators and you know I, I definitely think this can change if people actually place the onus on the perpetrator and don't blame the victim. That's such a great point. I was at like the Queen's Equity Conference last week and one of the speakers was kind of like an activist lawyer and she was talking about how I'm in Canadian law, like prosecutors, I'm not in law, um, but they're, they're not allowed to ask those questions, but they still will. Um, and I mean, the judge or the other lawyer, it'll, it'll get dismissed, but like the jury still heard that or the victim um, will get like flustered because um, people still ask these questions, even though like technically mm-hmm. they're not allowed. And I think that's such a great point on like how you respond to like a disclosure or like someone um, talking about their experience is so important. And even just asking those questions could really make someone kind of doubt their own experience which is so horrible um Mm -hmm. but I think that's such a great point Aubrey yeah and I think also it totally um plays into the whole reason that a lot of people choose not to report because oftentimes in court um I think it's hard for people to come forward and end up reporting because they know that they're gonna have to face their character being like completely just torn apart um because oftentimes they will use things like you were too drunk you were wearing this were you asking for this what underwear were you wearing that night which I just think um just makes it even harder for uh, survivors to want to go through that process because then you're just further faced with like, was this my fault? And it just like creates a process that instead of being able to report something and go through the process of dealing with something in a way that could be cathartic or help you through it. And, you know, it's like, it becomes like this daunting task instead of something that's necessary and should be done, you know? I know in bystander training, we talk a lot about how um, it's not just the actual experience itself that has like a huge um, role to play on kind of the journey of the survivor, but also like every time that they like discuss that experience and the responses they receive can have like such a huge impact, positive or negative. Um, so I think that's such a great point, whether it's like a more casual disclosure or whether someone is like reporting something, like how you respond and the questions you ask um, is so incredibly important. I watched Unbelievable, that docuseries. It starts off with a young girl and she is sexually assaulted and goes through the reporting process. And it's kind of like a social commentary on just like the the reporting process and how that goes. Even consent in like a cop survivor discussion, which I think is just really interesting. 
Yeah, I know this is something we talked about um, at, at the supper series as well, but I think that goes into like who has the power in a situation because um, unfortunately sexual violence like is a lot about power and gender-based violence in general. Um, and unfortunately it takes the power away from the survivor. And so if a survivor is kind of recounting their story, like being able to give them that power back and letting them take control of like what they share, when they share, how they share um, is so incredibly important. That sounds like a great um, docu-series. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to write it down. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, one interesting thing that I also um, notice you think about the role of that person who is talking with the survivor at the ver- first instance is so pivotal. And yet it's so understaffed at Queens and we don't have, we have one email <laughs> given for like t- roughly 20,000 students at the school. Um, and while that's not the only resource, I think that's the main one that we preach. So I think it is really important that the university sort of invests in um, more response officers because it is just so pivotal how they respond in that first moment um, because that totally will influence the way that that person goes about their reporting process or healing process in general. So, Also just having people know that these resources are accessible. I don't think that that's known to the broad amount of students here at Queens, like at all, like truthfully, like before I joined this club, I had no idea that of the amount of resources that were available to survivors of sexual violence. And it's unfortunate because it's like, I have friends who have been through incidents and they have not been aware that there's someone that they can talk to or someone that they can go through the process with and that can help them. And mm-hmm. they've kind of had to go a bit, like go through it alone. And it's like, it's really, really unfortunate because that's something that you need to seek like professional help with. You need to talk to someone who can help you. You can, there's options for you. And I feel like a lot of people don't know that here at Queens. I think it would be great if there was some way, even coming home last night and talking about the Sunday Supper series to my housemates, they were like, that sounds amazing. But it's so hard to know Queens and clubs at Queens and students and services are doing so many amazing things, but you have no idea where to look or there's no like centralized platform to understand like what is available to you. I mean, you hear about stuff all the time and you're like, oh, that's so cool. I would have gone, but I didn't know because I didn't follow that one Instagram page or whatever. So I think it was really great in the last um, podcast, I was hearing that there's the um, Instagram page that I forget what it's called, but it has like, it basically tells you all the events that are happening with like any queer focused like initiative at Queens. And that's super cool. And I think that that would be like a great um, initiative for like sexual assault or like um, consent or the bystander awareness. Like I think that that having just a centralized platform to know what all of your options are. And it's like this Friday, this is all the events that are happening in every club that's related to this topic. And I don't know if that does exist because like, (laughs) I feel like you never really (laughs) know because there are so many different options. And I think that's like, talking about like a little bit going backwards when you were talking about the consent Instagram Mm -hmm. page like especially with social media um there are so many amazing um like pages like like queers at queens um which is the one you're referring to oh yes yes. um but also like when you talked about like stolen by smith and stuff and I remember that was the year I came to university like so that 2020 Mm -hmm. was like the summer before I started and like Mm -hmm. reading all these things and it was like I mean incredible initiative and the students that did it like amazing that they were able to kind of like put like amplify student voices but it can be really hard I think sometimes like on social media we hear about 
um, kind of the negatives and then it's hard to find where we should be going um, for actual help. And I think that's such a good point because I don't know, I remember like reading those things where I started university and feeling like really scared um, about yeah. starting here. And now being like a couple years into my university experience, I have like either friends that I went to high school with or people I did sports with or, or people that are looking at university now. And they like ask me questions about Queens and, and they ask about that culture here and whether it's safe and those sort of things. And like the answer I give is not like, it's not a positive one necessarily on a reflection at Queens, which is sad. Like, I, I wish I could say that, like, you know, I always feel safe and I always feel like heard. Um, but that's not always the reflection I give, especially when talking to like marginalized students or um, equity deserving students like that. That's not their experience a lot of the time. And so I think really kind of directing that I think there has been a really positive shift kind of in the last couple of years of students voices being amplified and like hearing more about these experiences. And I wasn't here at Queens before these um, pages, but from what I hear, there has been like kind of a positive shift there. But I think it's kind of time like to respond um, because you know, amplifying is one thing, but responding and, and making a solution is the next, I think. It's really great that these pages are being made and that students are being the activists in these situations and creating platforms to amplify voices. But it's like something that I always found so unfortunate about it is that what students have accessible to them to have a platform to, you know, have something to relate to and the ones that become the most popular are the ones initiated by students, not initiated by adults, not initiated by professionals at the institution where these problems are occurring, where this crisis is happening. And, you know, it's great now that this is happening and it's, you know, like we're on a podcast right now initiated by an individual who works at Queen's University, which is really great, but it's like in the past, these pages who like got crazy amounts of followers and people could, you know, share their stories with. It's like, that was what was available. What I'd like to see in the future is students' voices being amplified through the institution itself and through initiatives being made by the adults, by the professionals. Mm -hmm. no, that's such a great point. It does feel like you have to get like thousands of students pressuring sometimes to get one response where it would be nice to get, you know, something that there wasn't like a huge amount of student labor and equity labor going into it to get kind of a response or action. Yeah, it's like we were even talking to Megan and Maeve about it at our symposium or maybe prior and they were talking about how difficult it was to be the one who was like the first responder to these issues of sexual violence. And like they were talking about how difficult it was to, you know, deal with that. And, you know, they had to take minutes of like mental health breaks because these stories are heavy and they're difficult to, you know, deal with. And, you know, they wanted to do this. They wanted to give a platform, but it's like, you know, that like unbelievably hard, like that would be hard. Like looking at the student experience survey, like the number of unfortunately instances of sexual violence and sexual assault on campus, like makes you think like almost every student at Queens um, would either experience those like instances themselves or at least like hear disclosures or have close friends um, or peers or classmates or some form um, of relation. So I think that's really important to kind of think about like how not just are we supporting survivors, but how are we supporting the supporters of survivors? Because that can be like extremely um, traumatic and really hard to hear and, and you want to remain open and we talk a lot about like how to respond to disclosures um like through the trainings and stuff but I think it's really important um to also just like think about 
because they're giving a lot of emotional labor and it's really important that they're being attentive and understanding and empathetic and giving their time and not appearing distracted, but also like their students and, and this is traumatic for them as well. So I don't know, that's something that I'm really passionate about because mm-hmm. um, I think it's something that's not talked about enough is like how much students take on kind of an emotional capacity of trying to support other students. Um, and I think it kind of comes back to what India said, like making the resources at Queens more available maybe um, so mm-hmm. that it wasn't like students with no professional training that are taking this on instead but that's just that's just my opinion (laughs) yeah or even just like if you see uh, at Queens that there are students who have this interest like providing them the tools um, to like really (laughs) other than us joining this out of interest um, joining consensual humans specifically they're other than my own like experiences and friends experiences like that is my understanding I've obviously done like a load of just like learning on my own, but um, I was never given any tools by the university to, you know, further my knowledge, further my ways to support others. Um, so I think that that's like huge, like you were talking about just being able to support students, whether it's like offering some funding for that time spent, um, because yeah, it's, it's huge. <laughs> and it's such like, I, don't, I think personally I'm biased, but I think the trainings are really helpful and really great. And I'm sure like um, we can dive into this symposium later too. Like I'm sure it was phenomenal, but mm-hmm. unfortunately like the students that are seeking out these things are, are probably people that are already pretty enthusiastic about creating a consent culture and making mm-hmm. a positive change on campus. So it's a little bit more about like, how do we reach the students that aren't actively seeking out these resources? Cause they're probably the ones that actually need the resources if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's, that's something that we've, we've actually talked about, you know, like how can we as individuals who are like trying to like create more consent culture and consent education at Queens reach the people who probably need to be educated on consent education you know what I mean it's like yeah it's like they're not the ones who are actively going to you know consent symposiums they're the ones who need to be like you know like one thing that Aubrey and I talked about is it's so interesting that social media is now like a facet that we can like use and that's why these like big pages like Consent at Queens, the one that Megan and Maeve started, um, is so important because it gets so much viewership. Like so many people are like learning about it, and it's kind of like breaking these boundaries, and it's like creating a space that's not just for the people who are actively educating themselves on consent. It's creating a space for people to just like, oh, I didn't know that that was what consent was. It's not just yes or no it's not just like the basic fundamentals I learned in high school grade nine health class you know it's like it's more than that it's more of a conversation which is great something I found as well um just reading through some of the accounts was that a lot of people wanted to see a resource for unlearning for perpetrators of what um like those behaviors are and like be able to be aware of them that's such a great point I don't know I feel like collaborations like this are very exciting Mm because sometimes I've heard this um from other students but like sometimes the circles can get a little small like you start to see the same faces a lot um especially kind of when you're doing like equity work or like SVPR work um so I think like finding different ways to kind of integrate um into different like clubs or different like groups on campus um and one way I think that's really awesome is when the university administration kind of supports that um and allows like these important messages to kind of be shared like in classrooms or like through on cue or like ways that you can just reach students that are not because of like who they're following or who their friends are um but yeah so I know you guys mentioned the symposium you held um so what was that like did, did you have panelists like how, how did that go yeah so we actually had a few guest speakers um we basically with this event wanted to 
bring things back to a fundamental knowledge of what consent means and what it looks like on a university campus um, because we feel uh, the transition from a lot of high school students into university through the online period they've missed that a little bit um, so we did have um, some panelists like Barb Loten the sexual violence response officer um, who usually is the first responder to uh, any sexual violence incidents that happen on campus or in the Kingston community or um, just anytime they have happened in your life and you feel that you want to talk about them now. Um, then we also had Megan and Maeve, as we discussed before, who were the co-chairs of the 2020 to 2021 school year. And they did the awesome project of the mural on campus, um, A Love That Clings. And then finally, we had Erica Campbell, who is one of the founding members of Consensual Humans, which was really great to bring it back to understand sort of how it started and what was the motivation there. Yeah, it was a really, it was just a really cool um, opportunity to just like sit down and have a conversation with individuals who have like either worked or continue to work in the field of consent. And, you know, like, creating a space for conversation and understanding how we can be activists with consent education, especially in campus environments. I think that that was like one of the main intentions Aubrey and I had in trying to create this event. And yeah, all the guest speakers were absolutely wonderful. And it was just a really cool way to just sit down and talk and like hear what people have to say about consent. So yeah. Hi, my name is Barb Loughton. I'm the Sexual Violence Prevention Response Coordinator in the Human Rights and Equity Office at Queen's. There are a number of things that I do on campus, but for today's conversation, I think it's important to know what kind of services um, our office might be offering students who ask to meet with us. So normally there are two of us in the office, uh, myself and the Sexual Violence Prevention Response Community Outreach and Student Support Worker. That person is largely responsible for education and prevention initiatives on campus. What we're able to do for students is to provide direct support for students who have experienced sexual violence. We do lots of referrals to on and off campus resources, other units on campus like student wellness services, QSAS, student academic supports. There's lots of places we might refer to, the Office of Faith and Spiritual Life. We also provide assistance with accommodations and appeals, so we can write letters of support for academic appeals, help you figure out a path forward, what the implications of you know, falling behind in academics might be, and come up with some strategies with you to solve those problems. We do some advocacy for you. We help you navigate uh, a number of systems on campus. They're not always all easy to figure out. And we provide information about um, reporting options. So if you wanna make a complaint to the university under the sexual violence policy, if you wanna make a complaint to police, we can answer questions about those processes. If you make a university policy complaint that comes through my office, and then we're available to support you through either of those processes if you're interested in doing that. We provide some support for staff and faculty who may be supporting students as well. So those are the big things in terms of student support. I think what's really important to know is that we don't need to know all of your personal details when you meet with us. We only need to know enough 
about what's gone on and how it's impacting you in order to help figure out how we might be helpful. We do need to know all the details if we're helping you to write a complaint or we're doing that on your behalf. There's also a high degree of confidentiality in our offices. You don't need to worry that coming to the office will trigger an automatic reporting or investigative process if that's not what you want. We can provide support for a student throughout their entire academic career, so undergraduate, graduate, and you can always bring a friend to a meeting. You don't have to come on your own. You can ask lots of questions. You don't have to make any decisions about next steps that you're not ready to make. You can come back as many times as you need to to ask those questions and get clarification. And as your needs change, we can work on new plans and try to be flexible. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me directly at bjl7 at queensu.ca. This is a Monday to Friday sort of nine to five service. It's not a crisis response. And so you won't find us after hours or on the weekends. We're also not counselors, so we're not providing therapy. We are systems navigators and support folks. So if it is actually counseling that you need, I really suggest uh, student wellness services, but we can help you connect there too. So don't feel like you're on your own to do all of those things. We're happy to help however we can. actually really interested um, in this question what other topics are important to address as part of this conversation of consent education yeah I would say um, a topic that I think is important to address as part of this conversation is at like a very young age learning how to shut down like hate and sexism and um, hopefully can nip things in the bud a little bit um, with just knowing that you like can say things <laughs> that are gonna shut them down and that like how important it is to support your friends if that's like someone that you're supporting in that way mm -hmm. I think that that's like pivotal <laughs> yeah I definitely think like to build off that just like teaching kids from a young age that consent also has a lot to do with power dynamics mm -hmm. and like understanding that like you can be putting someone in an uncomfortable position and, you know, maybe not be fully aware because you haven't really opened up the floor to communication. And that can start when you're so young and it doesn't even have to be with regards to sex itself. It can start off with just interactions with people, making the people around you feel comfortable. Cause mm -hmm. like, I feel like so often it's like consent is yes and no, but it's also just like, how can I actively with my partner that I'm about to engage in some sort of relation with, make them feel comfy? and make them feel like they're able to communicate when they're not. I'm just going to say, I think that's such a great point because I remember, I feel like sex ed, at least in my like elementary experience, started in like grade five or six, but I don't remember talking about consent culture because I remember the first time like consent being brought up like was when I was in like junior high or something and like boys making jokes about consent, like in a negative way. And that's the first time that like I heard consent in the context um, of sex, which is like really unfortunate. And so I don't know, like, why didn't anyone bring it up sooner? Like, why did it have to be like a negative first experience? Yeah. Why couldn't it have been positive, I guess? Actually, a question I have for you, Alicia, something I was thinking about a lot. I don't know if this happened at your high school, but I know at our high school, there was a lot of like nudes being spread and you would hear it from like your significant other at the time or like a, a, a guy friend, if he was in that hockey group chat or whatever, that like a friend of yours had that instance happen and like I don't know if you talk about that with like by center intervention training what as like a young guy like more traditionally you do in that situation like 
what kind of tools at that age you're given? No, that's a great point. I don't like, I'm trying to think of like in the training and I feel bad if I'm missing something. I don't think we specifically address it. Um, one thing I know we address is talking about like consent with all photos. Like even like today, like if you're just like posting a photo on social media, be like, Hey, are you good with me posting this? So like, especially if mm-hmm. someone could be like, you know, just double checking always. Um, but I think that's such a great point. Cause I remember that too, in high school and so much victim blaming around that too. So that was like one of my first like introductions to like, like that culture of like not respecting mm-hmm. boundaries and like an anti-consent yeah. culture, like was kind of surrounding like spreading of like photos of people without their consent. And it's such a great yeah. point because what, what do you do to shut that down? Especially when you're like 13 or 14. And, and I think a lot of that, it comes down to not just like, it should kind of be on the onus of like those guys are in like those locker room chats and like they're talking and like someone's like, oh, look at this photo. Like, like, what do you do to say that? Cause like, we should be teaching like people, like, what do you say <laughs> to be like, that's not okay. Yeah. You need to delete that or something like that. And it's such a great point. And it was never addressed. Like, I feel like consent or not, it wasn't, it was not consent training. Like my sex ed in high school was entirely surrounded like STDs and like and that sort of thing which also very important but nothing about consent the crazy thing when you think about it is like I know most of my consent education was from just being like the youngest of four sisters just talking about that and I remember like when I was really young I was at a resort with my family and drinking like virgin strawberry daiquiris and I like brought my drink to the bathroom with me and my mom came back and was like actually let's talk because that was great that you just did that and like went into it but you think about like a, a young man and like not having maybe that those conversations, yeah. especially with like, I know a lot of my housemates and I, we talk about consent or we'll like have a debrief after the symposium or we'll like hear about an incident and we'll all kind of like sit down and debrief. But you think like traditionally, like a lot of men don't necessarily have those conversations and don't have those like support systems. So I think we just need to really focus on having those conversations in the places that we know that they are for sure going to happen to make sure that at least like to a certain extent, people are getting the gist. Cause I think it's unfair to rely on all people to just figure that out on their own. Yeah. Aubrey, like I, I was thinking, I'm like, man, like the fact that like, I know for a fact that me and my girlfriends sit down at the end of the night and have a conversation about situations that may have arisen like with sexual violence or you know situations that have occurred or like you know we talk about you know whether or not somebody like made us feel comfortable during sex or you know and I feel like you know with regards to like you were talking about this earlier but with regards to who we want to target with consent education it's like I don't feel like a lot of men at Queen's University are sitting down and having these conversations like what girls are unfortunately. Yeah. And I mean, especially like, I feel like it's predominantly white cis men who are less likely to be experiencing these instances. Like I do think that we see some um, male representation, but it is usually men who are more likely to be experiencing these um, instances. So yeah, I think it's really, really important. And And it's also just like the fact that they need to like they also, men also have experiences with sexual mm-hmm. violence. And I feel like that's forgotten a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's like taboo for a guy to like sit down and be like, man, I just in, like was having sex with someone and I didn't want to. And it's like, it happens a lot more often mm-hmm. than I feel like it's talked about because guys have like a different, you know, perception of like, or like they have a different um, stereotype of like how they should be approaching sexual interactions, you know? Yeah. And even beyond that, like on the conversation of like, what, like, 
like women identifying like individuals talk about versus and I know I'm generalizing but like versus what like guys talk about like I was talking to um my boyfriend who I, who I knew since high school and I was talking about this friend that we had in common and I was like and I stopped hanging out with them and I didn't like them anymore and I was like well they said a transphobic comment and he goes well I didn't know that like I would have stopped being friends with them but I didn't know that and I was like well, I don't know like we knew them for like a year like how did that like and he's like, but like, when did that come up? And I'm like, it just comes up. Like, if you talk about things, but he was like, that never came up in my conversations. And I'm like, well, I don't know what conversations you're having, but like, I feel like these are things I notice. And I think it's like, guys just kind of like gloss over those things sometimes. Like they don't have those like more difficult conversations. It's hilarious that you mentioned that because I have had the exact same conversation with my boyfriend and it was the exact same thing. It was like a offside comment. And I was there and I was like, I was like, let's dive into that for a second, <laughs> like back it up a few steps. And then I talked about it with him after and he was like yeah I've never noticed that and I was like yeah well uh that's weird because like that's my first time hanging out with him and I've noticed it just in the first few minutes you're talking like and it's so true like I think a lot of the time um the guys just I don't think don't really have those like conversations where you're talking about like even just like current events as much or like what's going on or like with a lot of the different like girls I've been seeing this week I've been like hey be careful at stages this weekend or like, Hey, there's this guy injecting people at Trinity, like be careful. Whereas I'm not like having those conversations as much with my male friends. But I also think it kind of stands to illuminate like, because we see the difference, right? Like as, as women looking at like our male friends, Mm -hmm. but I think it's kind of important to think that like, we're probably not noticing things like microaggressions when it comes to like race um, or different like minority groups that we're not part of. And I think like sometimes like, you know, it's exasperating looking at the men, but it's probably like, I think it's kind of a good way to like, evaluate like how we react to other situations and think about like how many things we probably miss and like how much better of a job we could be doing if we were more like just cognizant and thinking really thinking about what people say and like not letting those little things slide just being like hey like no um and how important that is Guys, how can the Queen's community address the discrimination, oppression, and power dynamics that perpetuate rape culture? Yeah, so I think uh, just to talk about rape culture in and of itself, I think um, it basically means values and beliefs or behaviors that are normalizing sexual assault and abuse. Um, to me, I think that each faculty is deeply like entrenched with just like behaviors that are um, normalizing of sexual violence. For me, it's like coming up with a solution to it. It's just like, you know, you feel like you're kind of banging on this wall. You're like, okay, we need active and requisite education. And we know there's a problem, but nobody's really willing to sit down and address it in a way that actually, you know, creates a change. You know what I mean? It's like there's students, obviously, who are doing, you know, the activist stuff with like, creating Instagram pages and trying to spread like and create a platform obviously but I'm talking like the stuff that changes a culture and a community and it's like I think this is something that we talked about with our consent on campus symposium but it's like Queen's University culture is very assumptive and I think it comes down to like evaluating the history of the institution um similar to how like it has like deep roots and like a racist past like when we talk about like um not allowing black medical students until like a shockingly recent time but also I remember I work in like orientation and um one of the like when I was applying to the Gale one of the questions was like do you have an idea for like the slogan to go on the back of coveralls and I was like 
I mean, I did an online orientation. I don't even know what the slogans on the back of covers all are. So I was researching it. And like some of the articles that came up were from like the 70s and 80s. And the things that they put on the back of like the coveralls were just like, like rape jokes. Um, and then like, just kind of like diving into like the history of orientation and that they used to like wear like cards and you were like, women were supposed to say like their weight and their like name so that like upper year men could like read stats about them and, and they would have signs. It's like so horrifying. And so I think that idea of like, oh, like, you know, we're past that. We're just moving on. But like, no, like we need to like actively dismantle these systems because there is like institutionalized like sexism racism misogyny kind of just ingrained in like the queen's culture i think that's such a great point india i was gonna say i also think that there's like a huge onus um to dismantle the rape culture at queens on like professors and tas i think that um with instances like the walkout in the fall i think it was massively important for um professors and tas to make that a thing that students were able to leave class for whether that means like indirectly just not requiring attendance or not requiring like a quiz that specific period of time in the day, I think speaks volumes to like allowing them to participate in these walkouts um, or even just like taking time to really delve into Truth and Reconciliation Day or things like that, I think are huge. And I don't think professors and TAs realize how much influence they have over students in those specific times. Yeah. And what a positive influence it is when they do like, so this isn't my professor, um, but like I have friends in this course and, and so their professor, professor, but your grant, like during their class was during the walkout and they walked with the students and attended it um, with the students and like, and they were just like, the students felt so like, that was a really big moment. And, and they appreciated that like outward support. And like, I think that's like power dynamics are so important and they can be so negative, but they can also have such a positive impact. Um, I think that's really awesome. And then the only other thing I want to highlight in, in talking about, um, kind of the culture at Queens is I think and it, it comes down to like I'm sure everyone's kind of seen the pyramids we talk about it in the training as well but I think sometimes people don't realize like how like insidious the roots of like rape jokes and slut shaming and like victim blaming and like the little like the microaggressions at the bottom which are still horrible things but like there sometimes there's just a lack of understanding that these things build up and they are the things that contribute to like the things that everyone agrees are like scary and bad like rape and, and murder like but it is these like little steps kind of along the way that build up a rape culture and that like allow these things to happen in society and when people are like there's nothing I can do like that's like what am I going to do like there are steps you can take to like mitigate those long-term outcomes by stopping those little little things along the way that aren't so little really yeah like not not letting like these type of jokes not letting this kind of culture slide I think that's something that's really important is that we have like a collective responsibility to stand up against rape culture. You know, if like we, we actively need to engage in educating ourselves and, you know, have conversations with people, call people out when you see your friends doing something that is unacceptable, not just letting these kind of things slide. I think that that's mm -hmm. super important. Yeah. So I guess a good question then from that would be um, like, where have you both found safe spaces at Queens that you feel are sort of dismantling that culture? It was definitely this club in second year. I went through an experience personally where I didn't really feel like I knew how to, you know, I, I looked at this huge system to that to me was just so messed up. And I'm like, okay, how can I as an individual try to like address this and try to find some sort of outlet to like communicate? And I think that being hired in my second year as a blog contributor for um, consensual humans allowed me to kind of have an outlet to like, 
write about things that were bugging me and write about things that, you know, I wish were talked about more. And, you know, I'm really thankful that like consensual humans, like was an environment that made me feel like I was able to like write and like, and now like lead, which is so awesome. It feels like super full circle. Um, I would also agree with you, India. I think consensual humans has been definitely a safe space for me. I think my interest in joining the club started just having a close person in my life, have an experience at university and in their frosh week. And I think that that really just like harnessed me wanting to change the environment here. And I noticed that um, being on West campus and walking home on those late nights alone when the buses weren't running and just being like, wow, this is, uh, should not be allowed. <laughs> and yeah, me walking in my robe up to the second floor bathroom to take a shower, like that shouldn't be okay. Like just things like that, that I think joining consensual humans, the same time as India, um, as an external relations coordinator was, um, yeah, massive, especially through online. Cause I think it's hard to find safe spaces through online school, but I definitely think consensual humans has been that for me. Um, yeah, no, I guess a little bit of a different um, experience because I'm not in consensual humans. Um, but I, I think just like the idea of like being involved goes a long way. Like when I like came to Queens, like read, and I talked about a little bit, like reading about those pages and, and I came from out of province. And so I didn't really know a lot about Queens until I got here and people were talking about this culture. Um, and I was like, I'm so nervous. Um, but I did my first year online. And so I didn't really like, I wasn't like running into people on the streets or like, um, like in orientation. Like, so the people I met were through like initiatives I joined and so what I joined was student government like the arts and science undergraduate society and I had just like such a positive experience I was an intern like all the other interns were like very passionate um like we started like the initiative we did was we started it's called queens.u and it was just a page to help like incoming first years and it was just such a positive experience and like the executive team on that year like council like lovely and I just like remember being like this is great this is awesome and then in second year we kind of went back in person um, and it's not that it's been like a negative experience ever since, but it was like when you started going to class and I just like that culture became more apparent. Um, and I really started to like realize, and also like I work um, at the student experience office um, and I still work in the arts and science undergraduate society. And I just find like the difference between when like the people that get involved in like doing clubs and, and have like jobs and, and it's just like a bit of a culture difference, like between those. And then, and then sometimes when you just like things on the street that are really like upsetting or, or you see things on social media and so I guess like it's not just like one safe space but like the students that are committing and doing work are, are really wonderful people and they're doing so much amazing work um and it's really exciting to be part of those initiatives like getting involved for me has been like such a wonderful like space because all those people are working really hard to make a change um but it is kind of a good way like just joining initiatives like consensual humans um or like I got involved in kind of academic advocacy like those people that want to make a change are people that are making the change in their own behavior and actions and words as well so that's kind of what I've done man this was a wholesome question <laughs> <So> wholesome. <laughs> that was a wholesome question but I think I think even just like safe spaces can be found with like you know friends and like people that you trust and it's like I think that mm -hmm. you know apart from you know being able to like be a part of a club it's like if you have a group of people that you trust like communicate with them talk to them about things and experiences that you've been through like and you know I think that there are safe spaces at Queens where you know you can communicate and go through something and like talk to someone about and I think that that's really important to know and it should be way more accessible and advertised I want 
us to you know be able to like reach so many more people and like have people be aware that there's like resources for them and safe spaces that you know students are trying to create because most of the time it's like you find that people who are you know in these kind of clubs they have personal experiences and a very deep understanding of you know the stuff that we're discussing and trying to dismantle so a question that I've been burning to ask both of you is who or what do you think is the biggest contributor to the culture shift that is so desperately needed at Queens and who else do you think needs to be a part of the conversation I feel like it's the apathetic students a little bit like there's always going to be students that are driving hard for advocacy and like that's so awesome to see but they're always going to be there and they're already doing that amazing work and like they need more um and then unfortunately I think there's always going to be kind of students that unfortunately just like are not there with the initiatives but I think there's like literal tens of thousands (laughs) of students like in between um that are just kind of like apathetic not really paying attention um and I think those are the ones unfortunately like I'd love to say it needs to come from administration but I think like some of the biggest things we've seen like so my smith talking about the consent one like are when like all the students get behind it and so I think those are kind of those students that are on Mm -hmm. the fence and not really like listening in often but when they start to get behind it like those are the numbers and I think that's when we start to see the change so like you know, you're probably not listening to this podcast. Um, but if you are like, and if like, you're seeing like events by like consensual humans, you're like, oh, that's not really my thing, but like, good for them, like show up to an event, like, and like engage in those conversations. And even if you're like, well, I like, you know, like, I think I get it. I don't need to talk about it. Like, it's still helpful to like have these conversations and like talk about how you can make a positive change at Queens. And so that's, that's what I think where I see like the biggest vessel of change. <laughs> that, that was such a great way of saying it for sure. Yeah, no, I I fully agree with that. I think for me, the biggest contributor definitely is the educators and not necessarily in like a university setting. I think that if we we start our education at the age of four years old, and if we were able to just continually be educated on how to have respectful relationships with one another from a young age forward all throughout our lives I think that that would be a big yeah a big change in how we address mm-hmm. consent that's also great. when we're older and it would be stigmatized a lot yeah. so <laughs> I feel like I'm gonna end up being the kind of pessimistic one here <laughs> um I definitely feel that um the university has a huge responsibility in creating this culture shift I'm mostly saying this because the stats that came out in the student experience survey weren't all that surprising to me. And I'm sure weren't surprising to a lot of people. And I just, the friend I was talking about earlier, um, that incident happened more than 10 years ago. And I just think that um, there is a lot that's happening through students and people who are really passionate about this and driven. But I also think that um, to make any like really hardcore changes, it really needs to come from the university. That's not to ignore what's going on with students or other things, but I just, I think that there needs to be like a a big change at the institutional level. Well, thank you guys so much for sitting down and having this conversation with me. It was really great hearing both of your thoughts on all these topics. And yeah, it was great talking to you guys. Have a great day. It's lovely to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shift Podcast. 
To access sexual violence and prevention response services, please visit queensu.ca slash sexual violence support. For a list of all the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit the link on the CFRC webpage for The Shift podcast. If you have stories that you'd like to share on The Shift podcast about your experience at Queen's or have questions or comments in general, email studentexperiencessurvey at queensu.ca. Join us next week for another episode of The Shift podcast.